Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 221, and today's guest is John Herstick, Executive Vice President at PTC and founder of Onshape. Successful serial entrepreneurs are unique in their ability to see transformational shifts before they happen, and then they ultimately build a company to meet this future demand. In John's case, it started during his time at MIT when he saw an opportunity in the CAD industry to automate an engineer's sketchbook. It led him to start his first company called Premise, which was later acquired. The next shift was recognizing the difficulty of using CAD software for product designers and thinking that there must be a better way. This led to the launch of SolidWorks, and they built their software to run on Microsoft Windows, which was groundbreaking at the time. The company scaled rapidly, and it led to another successful acquisition. As technology evolved to more of a SaaS business model and cloud-based architecture, this opened the door for his latest company called Onshape. It changed the game for product designers in so many ways, but especially for team-based product development collaboration. The company also scaled aggressively, and as you might be able to guess, another amazing acquisition, this time by PTC in 2019. Oh, and not only is John a great entrepreneur, but he was also part of the famous MIT Blackjack team, which we discuss in lots of detail about this experience and also his interest in magic. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like John's experience using a computer for the first time at his high school, which includes a very precious fun fact about a popular movie from the 80s, why he chose to study mechanical engineering at MIT, and how he got involved in the CAD software industry, a journey through John's entrepreneurial career, including lots of stories around the companies he's built, all the details about the launch of Onshape, its acquisition by PTC, including the growing popularity of the platform, as well as their focus on making a meaningful impact on important initiatives like education, where over 1 million educators and students have free access to their software, advice for founders on building out their core foundational team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, whenever someone asks me, who are the fastest growing tech companies, I simply direct them to the companies tab on VentureFizz. From there, you could do a virtual tour of the tech scene and explore hundreds of companies. From each company page, you'll learn everything you need to know from a high level in terms of the company, their product or service, job openings, culture, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash companies to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because you're you're a legend in the tech industry. You've started multiple companies, so we're going to talk about that. And not only are you a great tech entrepreneur, but you're a man of many talents, Uh, blackjack, magic, and there's probably other things that I'm not aware of that maybe we'll uncover during this podcast. We'll find out. (laughs) So we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, happy to. And I, I want to just, you know, start off with the blackjack, right? So I had Semyon Dukac on the podcast before. So he was one of the other members of the famed MIT blackjack team back in the day. So um, this is a team that has a lot of notoriety of, of, you know, there's books, there's documentaries, there's a movie. So there's a lot that's been made of the MIT blackjack team. So talk about your involvement with that. And um how did that kind of lay down a foundation for entrepreneurship? Well, I started with the MIT blackjack team in 1984. I saw a sign in the student center at MIT in those days, paper signs, no websites or anything. It said, 
earn two to six thousand dollars over the next six months playing blackjack with a professional team. And I thought, well, that that can't be so. And I, I came to learn it could be so. And in fact, it's I ended up making, true. <laughs> yeah, I made a lot more than that um, over time. And I learned that they had a system, you know, that, that, that there was a group of people loosely affiliated with MIT. They had a system for counting cards and other things, other technology that's not counting cards and a bankroll. And we played and won. And I, I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people. I, I learned a lot about, first of all, taking risks like the, the, the blackjack team was something most of my friends told me was a crazy idea. It would never work out. You'll never make money. You know, I have a friend who goes to Vegas all the time and they say that, you know, systems like this can never work. And, all. and guess what? It worked. And I mean, you know, it worked very well over many years. And it taught me that even when everyone thinks you cannot succeed, okay, you actually can succeed. A very important lesson for entrepreneurship. Uh, another thing it teaches you is about the use of data and uh, collecting data systematically in those days on paper and how to process it. It taught me about the value of, um, of understanding what the long run really is because in blackjack, like in business, somebody with great talent and a good strategy can have a short-term bad run of luck. And the opposite is also true. Most people I found in the world since playing blackjack, most people um, overemphasize short-term results. They, they extrapolate too much from a small sample size. Blackjack teaches you to understand how long the long run really can be. And it's a very important lesson in business. Um, and, you know, just just all kinds of lessons uh, learned there and uh, uh, a great experience uh, for sure. You definitely had interesting weekends, I'm sure, compared to maybe just hanging out in Boston and on campus yeah. at MIT. <laughs> Many interesting weekends. And if you've seen any of the, the movie, the TV show, um, uh, read the books, um, the different, you know, there's multiple TV shows about it. If you see any of that, there is... Um, truth in the idea of like transporting to a different world for the weekend because it'd be like i'd go to you know atlantic city or vegas for the weekend and you know high, gamble at high stakes of course we had a system it wasn't my money it was team money um ride around a limo get free hotel rooms and all that and then you know then you get back on monday and like you know over lunch in the cad research lab it's like yeah what do you do this weekend i'm like I'm really not sure how to begin this story. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I would tell people about it. Some people thought I was making it up. And other times I just didn't want to get into it because it's just, you know, you get tired. You tell the same story and people don't believe you anyway. It's just so weird, you know, to describe it. And um, uh, there's that scene in one of the, either the movie or the TV show, one of the shows, I forget. The, the guy is in his dorm room and he, he kind of wakes up and he rolls over and grabs the phone and says, room service, please. And he realizes he's in his MIT dorm room. And that's, <laughs> that didn't literally happen to me, but it's kind of like you could have imagined if it had. And uh, it was it was real adventure for sure. But it also was a ton of work. And mm -hmm. so one thing that's really important to emphasize is we, we really worked at Blackjack. And... Um, uh, so, so it was, it was a ton of practice, you know, and then when you're done practicing, you'd practice some more and then practice and testing. And the, I'm not sure the, the media treatments really convey just how much pure work was involved. 
Now, it, these systems that were developed, like are they systems that still could be effective today or have, you know, casinos figured out the MIT systems and, or not MIT, but the blackjack team systems and now can counter that? Well, casinos had understood the systems before I even started in the 80s. So one of the myths of the, the you know, book and movie is like, oh, this particular, um, this particular version of the MIT team, which had many versions over the years, it was kind of like, it's more like a sports team, like a club sport team that, you know, new people would come in and oldsters would go out. So I was like a, a few years ahead of Semyon. So I feel like I was kind of like a grad student when he was a freshman kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, the book or movie kind of makes out this particular team, you know, they had this secret system and that was, no, not at all. If you look mm -hmm. up their books written in the seventies, um, uh, uh, Ken Houston, million dollar blackjack and Thorpe beat the dealer in 1960s, MIT professor, by the way, hold that thought on Thorpe wrote the first card counting book. I'll be back to talk about him with CAD and how everything connects. We'll get to that. But, but Thorpe wrote a book, Houston's book laid out all the things the MIT team were doing. That was before I started, let alone before the events in the popular books and movies. So um, they, they not only knew the system, they could go buy a book that laid it all out. So the casinos knew about it. And this issue of discovering us, this was a, an issue from day one of my career was getting detected and, and so forth. Uh, so they, they, the casinos know, could you still do it today? Yes, you can. There are people who still make money playing blackjack or more generally in the field of what you might call advantage play, which is finding ways to find edges in games, uh, generally mathematically valid edges as opposed to skill-based edges. Like you can say, hey, I'm a good, you know, you could be a, um, uh, a good at, a, at playing a game. You could be a good poker player, but that's not quite the same as having a mathematical advantage much like the house tends to have the mathematical advantages. You can still use the systems, but conditions have gotten harder. Mm -hmm. Conditions that they, this subtle things about the way the games are presented that you, the average player wouldn't notice can really cut into your profitability. And indeed they now have at some casino shuffling machines that, that continuously shuffle. And, and those machines are not generally thought to be beatable by traditional approaches to card counting. Note I qualify everything because the one thing I've learned in blackjack, <laughs> I know a lot more than the average person, but everything I would tell you about the game is as far as I know. So the more you learn about some subjects, the more you learn there are things that you don't oh, always no. know about. Yep. So, so true. And believe me, I've seen new things come into the fields of blackjack and technology and, uh, so as far as I know. Well, let's rewind the clock. Let's uh, you know, talk about the foundational years. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, so I grew up in Chicago on the north side of Chicago. I went to Chicago public schools. Um, I was a little bit, probably a little bit of a nerd even then. Um, um, I had skipped a grade since you asked. I had skipped a grade in grammar school based on tests or something. And and that sounds like a nice idea, but you end up being a year younger than everyone when mm -hmm. you're in like fifth or sixth grade and socially a little awkward. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. So, and I was drawn to building electronic circuits. I met a friend at school who we built circuits and started reading Popular Electronics Magazine in 1975. The Altair personal computer came out. I think it was a subscriber then. 
And I moved to um, a suburb of Chicago for high school because my parents wanted me to go to a better school. So the family moved to a suburb. Turns out it was the high school where the movie The Breakfast Club was set. By no way. Sidebar. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Something I discovered when I went to see the movie The Breakfast Club and they pull up in front of the high school. That's my high school. That's my high school. Yeah, you know, so that's, I love that's fun facts like that. Yeah, I figured you would. See, I'm trying to give you. See, these are things I didn't mention in some of the other podcasts I was in. Uh -huh. I don't think anyone else got the Breakfast Club angle. So, so anyway, um, in that high school building, here's something I've never said to anyone. It's very interesting. I first used a computer in the building that the Breakfast Club was filmed at. The high school that where the breakfast club was filmed, that building I discovered walking around the hall, there was a teletype down the hall. I'm going in all kinds of detail here, Keith, mm -hmm. but you know, you see it. So there was a teletype. I, I didn't know what teletype was. It looked like a typewriter and you had this device, an acoustic coupler, which is a modem. Some people know about a modem that works with phone lines. This one, you had to take the phone handset and put it in two cups, would rest in and actually made acoustic noises. Hmm to communicate with the phone system, 110 baud, <laughs> not, not 110 megabit, not 110 megabit, not 110 kilobit, 110 bits. Now, you know, today I have, I have a, I have a gigabit at my house, you know, exactly. $49 a month or something. This was 110 bit computing. So I learned, I was fascinated by programming a computer from the first time I saw one and someone showed me how to write, you know, you know, input X and Y, Z equal X plus Y print Z. It was like, ah, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. And so I started programming computers and I did magic tricks. I learned to do magic tricks, probably as a way to socially fit in or something. <laughs> I was kind of your typical nerdy, you know, grade school, high school magician. And I love doing magic tricks. And I think magic like blackjack has been really helpful skill for my career because I've given a million presentations and demos. Mm -hmm. A demo of technology is a lot like a magic trick. It, you've got to prepare, 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 and be ready to do it consistently and have a storyline and be able to do something technically complex while you're talking about a storyline. So I, I got into doing magic and then I, I did a couple hundred magic shows before I graduated from high school. I also learned to make balloon animals since you asked, and I was your typical, you know, you know, math and math and science kind of, you know, kid and, and uh, uh, you know, liked, liked math in particular as a class, I had some, some wonderful teachers. I was really lucky to run into some really amazing teachers. What was it about mechanical engineering that led you to study that at MIT? Uh, well, I was going to study electrical engineering. And on the eve of me going to college, like that summer, my uncle, who is a real interesting celebrity in his own right, um, uh, it's a whole other story. He had worked in engineer and um, actually had done some television work of all things, really interesting guy. My uncle Byron, he grabbed the MIT course catalog and he said, look, look at the classes you're gonna to have to take if you major in electrical engineering. It's like learning how to write compilers and stuff. And he flips through the catalog to, he goes, let me show you this other department. And he flips it open to mechanical engineering. I'm like, mechanical engineering, what's that? You know? And it has things like product design 
And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds so cool. I just remember seeing the descriptions for classes like product design and leapt off the page. And I'm like, that, that just sounds so cool. So um, that's, so I shifted over to mechanical engineering and particularly interested in product design and went to get an internship 40 years ago, almost today in 81 this spring. And the guy in the internship office said to me, he said, tell me about yourself. I said, well, I'm mechanical engineering major. Oh yeah. And I also, you know, I have to say, I know how to program a computer. You know, I did that in high school and everything else. Oh, mechanical engineering, computer programming. We have this company doing this thing called CAD software, computer vision. Went there for the summer, worked there, worked in CAD software every, basically every day since. That's my, now you know my whole story. That's it. That's amazing. Yeah. And what was the, like, what was CAD like then, right? Like, I mean, obviously it's, we're going to talk about how, how it is today, but back then, what was kind of like the state of the CAD industry? Uh, well, it was, uh, first of all, I didn't, I was, my first feeling was one of disappointment. So I got to the, you know, I had seen the brochures and they said, oh, you'll do 3D modeling, the computer and make drawings, you'll design things. I thought, that's cool. That's what we do today. I went in and first day, it was so boring and so hard to use. I literally fell asleep and I thought, oh, I've made this mistake. Good thing it's only for the summer. <laughs> like, oh, this, I thought this would be really exciting and cool. And it was always like, jargon and hard to use commands and the system's really slow. So most people today, like in your audience, um, can't really imagine the way computers were back then. So these were um, the company I worked at. First of all, they made everything. They made the computers, the display terminals, the software, even the chair came with it. <laughs> you know, if you can imagine that the, the the desk and the chair came with the system. Yeah, even beyond what people think, Apple makes everything. Well, Apple doesn't make the desk and the chair. You know, and so anyway, so the and the systems were were monochrome, so they meaning the screen wasn't in color. It was in any color you want as long as it's green. I think it was green. The color was on the screen, and you would. Um, you would uh, provide input with a large data tablet, sort of like a Wacom tablet is today. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the, I don't think it had a mouse. It used a data tablet and a keyboard. And you modeled using primarily wireframe modeling to create like stick figures of geometric shapes. Okay, so very primitive, slow, and a lot of typing and everything. And that was CAD. It was it was computer aided design, and you could make drawings, and you could make three D models that were essentially like it would be like the digital analog of modeling something with coat hanger wire. <laughs> you know, you could sort of make a stick figure resemble. And that was the state of CAD. And these systems cost, I don't know, one two hundred thousand dollars each. So you had these really expensive computers mm-hmm. surrounded by. Uh, lots of relatively inexpensive people. That was another interesting thing to think about. You know, the computer was very expensive. People come in on night shift and share one computer. Oh yeah. One computer, of course, powered several users at the same time. That was a given. So today it's just the opposite. You have a really expensive person and how many computers do you have around you right now? Your phone. If you're like me, I see my phone, 
one, two, three different laptops. I could explain why, but and, and an iPad, and that's just right here. And you know, they're they're cheap. I mean, compared to well, yeah. so so it's like the the it used to be the computer cost this much, and a person year cost this much, and now the person year costs this much, and the computer cost you know like is tiny. Anyway. That was CAD life then. Well, then you started a company shortly after graduating, yep. right? So was yep. entrepreneurship something that you were always interested in, in pursuing? And what did you, what was the company all about? Yeah. So I was, I don't, I think I was always interested in entrepreneurship. That's probably what part of what led me to working as a magician and playing blackjack. And I worked at the MIT CAD lab and I decided to start this company because I believed that the software, some of the research we were doing at the CAD lab could be commercialized as a product. And I thought, this is 1987, and a um, fraternity brother of mine had gone to work at Microsoft with Bill Gates and company, and he showed up and he said, hey, there's this thing called Windows, and everything's going to go to Windows. So I made this product with, with my co-founders. We made this company called Premise, and we made a what you think of today, for anyone who's familiar with modern CAD, like Onshape or SolidWorks, kind of like the sketcher part of it, the 2D sketcher that may or may not mean anything to you, plus some equation solving. It was kind of like the, the vision of the research at the lab and of my company premise was to, to automate like an engineer's sketchbook. You'd sketch and make equations and solve problems. And uh, that was the idea. So the company was then acquired from where you had your internship, some computer vision. Yeah, guess what? And, and along the way, if I can say, so we we started a company. I was just just around my 25th birthday. I was probably still, I might have still been 24 when we got it, when we were writing the business plan and everything. Yeah, I was actually, I remember now. And then then right around my 25th birthday, we, we were introduced to someone who, who got us venture capital funding, a million and a half dollars, which, in that era. So I raised venture capital right around my 25th birthday in 1987. So this venture capital and, you know, younger people raising it, that's not a new thing. You know, it's been going on a long time and it comes in and out of favor and fashion and scale and whatever. But anyway, uh, my co-founder, by the way, Axel Bishara, I don't know if you know. Axel. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. He was my co-founder then. Great guy. Another, okay. co another co-founder was John Chang, who, is in the like World Blackjack Hall of Fame, Blackjack team. So there's some interesting characters in this company. And we build the product and it turns out to be hard to sell. And we sell the company to Computer Vision back, back from whence I came. This is now 10 years later and back to Computer Vision. So lesson, when you get that college internship, do a good job right. and be a good good intern because 10 years later you might be selling your company back to that company and that's what happened to me and some of the same per people this fellow tommy lee who had been my mentor in 81 he gets assigned to look at my company in 91 along with my dear friend and fantastic co-founder of on shape and partner at SolidWorks, Dave Corcoran. That's the day I met him. So he comes over to do due diligence on us and Dave and Tommy. And, you know, we have this relationship spanning 30 or 40 years, respectively, with me and Dave and me and Tommy. So anyway, that's the story. So sell the company. So we start, I go from MIT, we start this company premise with Oxel, sell it back to computer vision. Now I'm back at computer vision. 
Okay. And then you go off to start another company. Solid works. Yes. I leave. So I say to myself, Axel and I talk and we're like, well, what have we learned? Well, we learned don't ever start a company again to build a software product from scratch. That's like for the birds, really hard. And this CAD business is, is bonkers. Let's do something else. So I designed this plan. I was going to start an online. I was going to start a catalog business for gambling equipment. I just thought it was an interesting idea. Crazy idea. Instead, though, I can't stop thinking about CAD. And so, so after, despite Oxel and I swearing off, a few months later, I, I leave Computer Vision because I just, I just wasn't for me. And uh, then I decide, you know what? The world does need another CAD system. And it should be at the time. So at the time, there's this new company, PTC. By the way, spoiler alert, where I work. Okay. Right. <laughs> PTC, I work there now. We'll get to that. PTC is a startup. I mean, they're kicking computer vision's butt. Okay. They're, they're killing us at computer vision, taking all our customers because they make 3D modeling that really works, not this ridiculous wireframe or impossible buggy solid modeling. They make solid modeling that really works. Solids mean you represent the real shape of objects in 3D. This is like, you know, one of the holy grails of, of, of CAD, if I can use that term, you know. And we had worked on research at the lab, but PGC really makes it work. It's kind of like, boom, it works. And their, their stock goes through the roof and their sales go through the roof. And they're like the most successful company in the world. And I look at this and I'm like, we're losing all these customers at computer vision. And I thought about it, I thought, you know, we deserve to lose them. PGC has got a really good technology here, but you know, I'm like, man, the system's really hard to use. PTC, you know, it's, it's written, it runs on Unix workstations, sans silicon graphics, and it's expensive. It's like $20,000 a seat for the software and up, you know, people are spending 30, $40,000 on the software. I'm like, if this 3D PTC is doing really good idea, but it ought to run like, it ought to work like Microsoft Word on a Windows PC. So this is the this is the sort of origin story of SolidWorks. Let's make the 3D like PTC has, but let's make it run on Windows like Word. 2D CAD already was on PCs. Okay. And people laughed at me about the Windows part. They were like, oh, engineers don't use Windows computers and it'll never be, what about the performance problem? It'll never be fast enough. What about security? You know, no one's gonna trust those Windows computers blah, 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 you know, all this, all this naysay stuff. And uh, I went to get raised venture capital. I was working on my house and got a founding group together. Uh, Tommy Lee and, and some other people that, uh, uh, that old guy known from MIT, Bob Zafonte, tremendous founder. Anyway, we're working on no money building this thing for like a year, I, uh, okay? And nobody will give me venture capital. Um, uh, nobody will. Um, uh, the uh, uh, investors just turn me down right and left. They're like, you're going to compete with PTC? Oh, you got to be nuts. Mm -hmm. Or PTC is doing a Windows version, I heard. And I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, but it's not a real Windows version. They're not going to have the price right and everything. And so anyway, I got, I got turned down a lot. So remember the blackjack lesson, you know, it's like my friends with blackjack. Oh, that'll never work.
networks of these investors. So I went a, a year with no income, paying bills out of my, you know, rented office space, bought a phone system. And then finally, we got the, uh, we got the venture capital and off we went and it's kind of a great, great success. Yeah, it scaled rapidly, right? I mean, so it did. Uh, from yeah. what I gathered, it's you know it's a hundred million in revenue or or more, or at least in that general ballpark, right? Oh yeah. Well, when we sold it, and I, I saw it when we when we communicated before this podcast, I saw you know it's a little bit different. But when we sold it, we were we had finished um, our previous year. I think we we had done like twelve million dollars, and. We were in the middle of doing a $27 million year. Now, remember, this is licensed software. So there's a lot more revenue up front than in a subscription world where there's a fraction. Mm-hmm. So we were in the middle. You could say we were around a $20 million run rate at that instantaneous moment. And DASA System came along and acquired us, um, which we thought would be a good way to improve our, our mission to bring this to market. And um, uh, so they bought us, they bought us um, four years, that deal closed about four years into the journey. And I stayed another 14 years at DASA System. Yeah, I stayed 18 years and I was CEO for a long time. And I stepped down as CEO, had four kids in six, six and a half years. Uh, (laughs) Just a little bit. yeah, a little busy, um, and uh, uh, so uh, that's that's kind of it. So SolidWorks was a great success. It, it it when I left, it was probably doing six hundred million a year. Now it's like a billion a year as part of the asset system. But the greatest success isn't just the money, the revenue. It was seeing my vision and mission, you know, through, which was to really um, help. The world's product developers build great products, and SolidWorks did that. And so it was really exciting for me to, to see that happen. I hate it when entrepreneurs sell their company. I'm like, well, I'm done. You know, like that's it. Well, you know, you see them when they're founding the company, like, we're going to change the world with my new invention, you know. And then it's like six months later, you see them like, oh, yeah, we got an acquisition offer for a lot of money. So I sold it. What about the change the world part? Oh, I don't know. I, I exited. I hate that term, exit. Did you have an exit? You know, like selling a company isn't an exit. It's kind of like you should view it more like a recapitalization of the company. You know? Like there's been some topics of late that I've been reading a lot about of, uh, you know, VCs having kind of a different approach where more entrepreneurs taking some skin off, you know, some money off the table so they yes. can go for that longer potential outcome yeah. for the investors yeah. like what are your thoughts on that good thing i think that's a good yeah. thing for for too long there was this notion that you know you end up with 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 founders who have this huge amount of paper wealth okay and no liquidity right. and so to, to translate that into plain english by the way it means their stock is theoretically worth call it i don't know 10 million, a hundred million, or a billion dollars. Let's just say it's worth $10 million. And they don't have $10,000 in the bank. And so they're like, they're like, you know, they're worth infinity on paper and zero in real life. So it's like, yeah, I have 
you know, 10, 20, or today it could be a billion dollars in stock on paper, but you know, I'm still changing my own oil because I feel like I, I don't want to spend any money on the, you know, whatever. And, and everyone wants to say, well, I don't need the money, you know, or anything. Well, money's part of the reason people do these things. And so there's two schools the old school thought used to be, well, keep the entrepreneur hungry and, you know, align all our interests. Well, the VC's interests are not aligned in that way because the venture people have a portfolio, mm-hmm. right? So they've got a lot of things coming and going, but the entrepreneur typically only has one right. table. All the chips on that one table. And the whole team has that. So what you don't want is you, so so some people believe, oh, if you give entrepreneurs liquidity, they're going to, they're going to lose their motivation. I think partial liquidity can be a really good thing because it can help keep an entrepreneur patient and not jump at big acquisition deals, which are not always in the long-term interests of what they want to be doing. And so uh, I'm, I'm a fan of properly, you know, when it comes, it's a tool to use properly. So it's not a tool for every situation. And it's not a tool to use improperly. It's just like your toolbox. You know, you have multiple tools. So early liquidity, partial liquidity, it can be a great thing for everyone. You know, and and it it, it changes the 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 um, risk reward profile, and uh, it can make people more comfortable. Because I, I like entrepreneurs who aren't thinking about changing their own oil. So talk about starting on shape this time around, repeat successful entrepreneur, raising capital, you know, what, what was it like as far as the lessons that you learned and you're able to apply to getting on shape off the ground? So, um, well, first off, it was very easy to raise capital, right? Because <laughs> once you have, um, once you have, uh, you know, having had SolidWorks behind us, wow, you know, all of a sudden, um, it's funny thing after you have your first big liquidity event for venture investors, and we made hundreds of millions of dollars for them with SolidWorks. Um, and then not just selling the company, but growing it, they all kind of knew we didn't, you know, we didn't want to flash in the pan. We'd grown it to 600 million at that time, something like that. Um, so all of a sudden I think, guess what? Your ideas get your ideas that get better and you get smarter. No, I'm joking. <laughs> in the eyes of the VC is you have a blank yeah, checkbook, a, right? Yeah, a blank a checkbook. Yeah, so we had people, we had more people want to invest in us from the beginning than we knew what to do with. And so, and I had an incredible founding team, Dave Corcoran, um, who had been such a brilliant part of building SolidWorks, John McElhinney, Tommy Lee from 81. He, he comes out of retirement to work with us in this company. Um, he's since retired again. Scott Harris, it's like dream team of, of co-founders. This guy, Michael Lauer, um, possibly one of the smartest people I ever met. MIT PhD, he would work with us at Premise. So we get the kind of dream team together. And then we added some really amazing other people. Ravi Reddy, the, the, the CTO from Blade Logic, he joined us. John Rousseau, who had been at um, CloudSwitch and Verizon. I could go on and on. We had really great people um, joined our team. And and, uh, people told us, again, all these crazy things they told me about SolidWorks. Well, people don't use the cloud. And and what about security? What about performance? They'll never be fast enough. And I'm like, what about performance? What about your performance with 
with this desktop software, you're going to run out of runway with one CPU. I got 100,000 CPUs at Amazon I'm going to put to work. And what about network bandwidth? They're like, well, my network bandwidth is only five megabit. That's not fast enough. I go, if you do nothing but keep watching TV and sit in your easy chair at home, your network bandwidth five years from now, it's going to be like a gigabit. They're like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, it's obvious. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. We, we raised, um, and then we raised money from local investors, Northbridge and uh, Commonwealth Capital, my dear friend, Elliot Katzman. Fantastic. Probably the best local VC track record in the last decade. If you check the companies I'll hit invested in, the returns he made, wow. Personal, you know, I mean, he's just a... So and then we raised money, from, we raised more money from NEA mm-hmm. and Andreessen Horowitz. I remember going out to Andreessen and they're like, well, what about all the other companies? What are they doing on the cloud? I go, well, they don't have anything like this. They go, oh, come on. They must all have something. I go, no, they, they don't. They go, what kind of, you know, they're looking at me like, it's like meeting some society in the Sahara that, you know, doesn't have phones and electricity. (laughs) They're like, like, you mean it's all still installed software? I'm like, yeah, it is. Oh, but they say they have cloud systems. I go, go look at them. They're not Mm -hmm. cloud systems. They're like, they they say, well, we have a cloud system too. It just has a thick client. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thick client is four gigabit, four gigabyte of download. It's the same old software same that they were yeah. making 20 years ago, and they just re, you know, they just you know re, rejigger it to make it look like it. So, um, well, in this time around, like you, you raised, you know, I think it was it 250 million. No, all in? it wasn't quite that much. It was 169 million, which okay. I got to admit sounds like 250 million. It's a lot of money. But I always say we raised the right amount of money for the job. Right. People yeah. say this company raised too much or too little or a lot or a little. Lot, little, big, small, slow, fast, hot, cold. Those are all relative to something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a lot of money, but it was the right amount of money considering what we were trying to do was such a more complicated task because the stakes of a CAD system had elevated so much. Mm-hmm. And the market was so much bigger and more complicated in a way. But we determined, build. And by the way, it's a really hard thing to build. And people in the industry thought we couldn't do it. And we're like, then we built it. And today we built it and we have all these great users. And it's like, sorry, industry, we could build it. <laughs> well, and you, so. you know, again, you are leading the industry and you disrupted and you brought it to, you know, you know cloud-based modern architecture. So at what point, did um, you know PTC start to gain interest and you know led to an acquisition? So we had had a relationship with PTC for a while, as in you know we we um, as you can tell, we kind of know people in our industry. We know competitors. I'm always a big believer in beat your competitors and get to know them because guess what? The whole story of my life is working with my competitors and competing with people I used to work with. I mean. It's kind of like a pickup basketball league where you know we're in different teams this season, but we all know each other. Mm-hmm. And so, so I knew the folks at PTC, not like best friends or anything, but we had met over the years with Jim Heppelman and Mike Campbell. And um, nothing had really happened. We talked about partnering or whatever. And I talked to the leaders of other companies too. Anyway, then one day I ran into Jim, Jim Heppelman at the um, Digital Manufacturing Conference in Boston. And 
And he had probably had this planned or something. But anyway, he said, hey, why don't you come down? You, you, know, you want to get together? I'm like, yeah, I hear your new building's awesome. Because I had heard from another company that acquired the founder said, you got to come down and see this building. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. So I just said to Jim, hey, I hear your new building's awesome. And I always love a guy like Jim. I, I just, I had some respect for him already. You know, I just thought he, he struck me as an interesting guy and, and a really straight shooter. And so we, I go down to meet him in the seaport and long story short, he says, look, we believe in the cloud. We believe it's the future. We think that the way you've done cloud, we understand you're the only ones in the industry have done it right. And we want to be in that market and we we're either going to, you know, we can, you know, we think the best way would be to acquire you and, and we'll, we'll invest more. You'll, you know, as part of PTC, you'll succeed bigger. And um, uh, John McElhinney, Dave Katzman and I went back for another meeting. We, we left. I remember standing outside in the street, right outside their big building in the seaport and saying, you know, this could be really good for us. Like, like we, we could, we could really benefit. And, and uh, that's exactly that was um, that was um, in 2019, and the acquisition closed at the end of 19. And it's exactly what Jim said it would be. He's mm -hmm. he's invested a ton. We're building some really cool new things in our products based on some other PTC technology. Our our Onshape, the core of Onshape, is used as part along with some other technology at PTC. We've made this platform for all PTC cloud software as a service SaaS applications. Mm -hmm. So we have a SaaS platform. Um, PTC isn't, you know, our team has doubled. Um, there's a huge education team at PTC that has brought us way more into the K-12 the K and university education market. Not a lot of money for us in it, not really any money for most of the users, it's free. But we've added with PTC during COVID, we've added a million students and teachers. A million students users. and teachers. A wow. million. That a is million, phenomenal. Yeah. See, like, yeah. That's just amazing. Because uh, yeah. you know, the fact that uh, students have the access to those types of tools and what they're learning and what they're able to think about in terms of developing the future of their you know, work or whatever they choose to do with their professional lives. And I, I did want to talk about that because obviously since the acquisition, we the world's been flipped upside down with the pandemic and how teams are thinking of product design and, you know, collaborating, like it couldn't have been a better fit PTC and Onshape and being able to accelerate what teams are doing today. So talk about like, I mean, the way people collaborate now and how it's been upended. Yeah. And so I think that, that obviously COVID put a premium on remote work. You know, everyone knows that. And we're we're ideally suited for remote work for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one reason you'd say is, well, you, you don't need to have a Windows computer. You don't need to install anything. True. You don't need to share, send files around, which is always messy because, you know, who has the latest version of the files and, you know. But beyond that, Onshape has a ton of collaboration features that make remote team collaboration really productive. So we have Google Docs type, you know, collaboration queues all over the place. We have uh, uh, comments and, and tasks and chat. Uh, we have this thing called follow mode. You can see what the other person's doing. We have real-time co-editing like, like Google. So we're just like made for remote work. But we also help teams with 
things like that are also on people's minds now with COVID, which is agility. Basically, no matter what happened to your business last year during COVID, something happened and you had to become very agile, all of our customers. So if business was good, like if you made you know medical supplies and all of a sudden you need to make 10 times more of them, well, you had to be agile. You had to say, how are we going to make 10 times more? And our suppliers, we have to change supply chain. If business was bad, you had to be agile. You had to say, uh-oh, no one's buying this product anymore. What other product can we make? Better pivot. And so everyone learned to be more agile than they thought they could be. And everyone was forced to do things in COVID that they didn't imagine they ever could do. But guess what? They found they could do things they didn't imagine. And so that agility, we're a big win for that too. Yeah. Whether it's education now in the commercial market, we didn't quite get a million users, but our sales are, are up. This is, if you look at PTC's public financial statements as part of you know our public investor communications, which I am not, I'm going to refer you to those. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd see our, our, our new sales grew um, over 70% each of the last um, uh, several quarters. And um, year to year, you know, so the quarterly results they report are that's incredible growth, as you know. Yeah. Um, and we think it's just beginning. We think that this market has really totally moved yet. We're still a small part of the overall market, but the opportunity is huge. And so, yeah, COVID been a big swing our way. You know, all the things that we thought were going to happen anyway in the world, they just got accelerated by it. Now, so where where's the industry heading as it relates to things like augmented reality? Like that's another piece of, I think, uh, something of note of product design. Yeah, so augmented reality um, is, I think, a, a fantastic technology. It's going to just become a bigger part of our lives. In in maybe uh, I'll choose to focus on three ways. One is as a consumer. Two is as a product developer. Three is for industry and general manufacturing for and everything. Uh, and, and in category one as a consumer, gaming and entertainment, I'm going to leave that to other people. I think it's still very early, you know, in Pokemon Go or whatever. Other people could tell you more about that. In, in category two for product development, it's not a factor yet, but it's going to become one. And you're going to see some, I think, more and more exciting use cases from people like us and uh, Onshape and um, uh, for use with CAD. Creo today has a, um, a technology for, for um, putting Creo models into augmented reality devices. Where we're really seeing the action is in the third category, which is industrial use cases of augmented reality. You may not know how many uh, industrial users are actually using it today. Wow. Because the factory floor, the frontline worker, they don't have computing devices they can use easily in their work. If you're a maintenance technician, if you're an assembly person, if you're an assembly worker building tractors or, or, um, or um, machinery, the digital transformation of the world hasn't really affected you so much. I mean, for, for white collar workers, yeah, you're using Zoom and Teams and Slack and blah blah blah. For the person in the factory floor, they maybe have a computer terminal or something. But AR changes that. AR is the platform that can bring computing to the frontline industrial worker. So more important than gaming or something is this idea that the 
the industrial worker can can use um, uh, AR to to essentially decorate the, their view of the physical world with augmented reality information that helps them do their job better. And Vuforia, PTC's um, augmented reality division, Vuforia, I think is the world leader right now in industrial AR applications. And they're not just prototypes and conceptual studies. Yeah, some people buy Vuforia to build a prototype or something, but people are really using it. You, you know, people are using Vuforia for, for um, aiding factory workers in assembly and QA. Uh, today, okay, Ex our expert capture product captures expert knowledge, um, and let's it, and it does it. You have an expert who trains using the AR headset, so they don't have to go to a terminal and learn to program. So they can use even voice commands to capture their expertise, and then that can be deployed. And talk about something that's helped during COVID. No one wants to fly workers around, um, uh, so it's really, really very cool way to guide workers um, doing um, doing tasks. We have another product called Chalk, which is remote assistance. It's kind of like uh, uh, doing a video call with 3D annotations. So if you and I were trying to diagnose a piece of equipment, a video call, I can call out in 3D. So AR is huge in industry today. Most people, that's the hidden story here is that mm -hmm. AR is rocking in industrial applications on the factory floor, field maintenance. Um, everyone wants to focus on consumer, not there. And my, in my area of product development, stay tuned. I also think we're gonna see a lot of exciting advances in the hardware platforms for AR um, as well, so. Why do you think Boston is such a hotbed for uh, you know these types of industries. You know, when I think of the software, right? So, Onshape PTC, the Salt Systems, and you know, going back to the legacy world of computer vision, right? But yeah. and then there's a lot of uh, you know 3D printing. There's Formlabs, Desktop Metal, Mark Forge. Like, why is there so much of a hotbed of companies supporting this type of industry product well, design? Probably a few factors. One is historical. You know, history runs deep, and you have MIT and Lincoln Lab, and um, uh, you have the. Um, I mean, the first CAD system was that I know of, as far as I know, to say something. Nineteen sixty-three, Ivan Sutherland, um, PhD thesis at MIT, Sketchpad. By the way, the interesting thing is um, Sutherland's thesis advisor. Claude Shannon, one of the truly great engineers in history. Um, Claude Shannon was Sutherland's advisor and Claude Shannon also advised Ed Thorpe who wrote that first book on blackjack. How about that for a little time? Oh, okay. So both CAD, the father of CAD and the father of blackjack, um, both had the same MIT thesis advisor, Claude Shannon. Look that one up, very interesting to me. Anyway. So, so cool. I think it's, first of all, history, you got MIT, you got Lincoln Lab, who did some amazing work with CAM and things, computer manufacturing early on. You've also got the, the Russian immigrant community here that provided, the, the Russian Jewish immigrant community provided a, a um, ton of great, brilliant mathematicians. And, and that was um, in the earlier era, people like Sam Geisberg, who founded PTC, 
um, and many others, even in, in, uh, at uh, Onshape, uh, Lana Saxenov, brilliant, brilliant mathematician, um, uh, Ilya Baron, whose whose family, came, you know, there's there's a long, a long, long um, legacy of of Russian mathematic talent that comes into our industry, which is very helpful. And uh, and then let's see what else. But why three D printing? I also think. Um, uh, we have decent roots in hardware design in this town, you know? So I think that the, the, um, the hardware and mechanical design history, the software, and particularly the CAD angle, all create the right kind of talent and environment. Also, the venture community here understands industrial companies mm-hmm. well, you know, like the, 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 um, I think there's a little more comfort with hardware and industrial processes in the community as opposed to, you know, those aren't headline news for every venture capitalist. So that's some of the reasons um, uh, that I think, uh, I think you'll, you'll, you'll see that. Uh, obviously the success of a company comes down to uh, the team. And you talked about some amazing founding teams that you've been on this journey with of starting companies. But like, what advice would you, would you give to founders outside of the founding team? Like bringing in that first layer of a company, like how do you think about hiring those first early employees? Well, when you think about hiring your founding team, you want to first draw on probably your gut instincts on choosing colleagues that you develop even in school or life before founding a company. Like right now, any of your listeners, if I said to you, right now, today, you need to form a team to do something and you can pick anyone you know, you probably have a gut reaction like a school project. If some of your listeners are students, you know, you get people listening in who are students looking at their first career step. If you said form a team in school, you said, hey, I have a project to build a machine or write a paper or do a presentation. Pick three fellow students. You probably know who you'd call. You'd think, oh, well, you know, uh, Jane, Joe, and Harvey, you know, they'd be perfect. You know, that that group, they're the ones that, that are just always on the ball, and I would avoid these other folks. So that kind of gut feeling is very, very important. Too often entrepreneurs think they need to you know, well, we need to hire somebody who I need to develop a spec sheet. You know, they need to have 4.7 years of experience with intermediate sized C++ applications. Well, that's helpful too, but don't overdo that side of it, you know? And so I think that that you, there's no question that forming your founding team is a little bit like forming a band. Like it's hard to know exactly who's, I've never formed a band, but you're trying to get that good sound and you know, you're trying to get the right team. And it's, it's very tricky and hard to explain or getting married. You know, you kind of learn by doing, but trust your few pieces of advice, trust your instincts. Realize that not everyone's a founder. I mean, there could be someone who is great for your team. You have to think this person might be good to have. Like I can think of a certain person who joined SolidWorks when we were around a hundred people. And I remember someone said to me, Man, I don't know if they're a small company person. I said they're a very good person at hundred people. They wouldn't have been a good person at ten. You know, you you also are probably going to need people who, who in addition to all the obvious things like smart and can deal with the uncertainties, 
you probably need people who either have a lot of depth, a lot of breadth, and preferably both. So you can hire someone in your founding team who's got steps, who's a PhD mathematician, knows all about your subject work, who's a brilliant, you know, if you're a brilliant designer, if you're designing some, or you can get people who have some breath, like, hey, I'm pretty good at hardware, I'm pretty good at software, I've even done some sales. Those can be handy people, but you can't really afford anyone who doesn't have a lot of one of those things. <laughs> you know, you can't just say, well, this person's a decent engineer and they cover only a slice of hardware and they're pretty good. We'll make them a founder. Probably not the best thing. And by the way, founder is early employees are as important as founders too. It's the same thing applies to. You got to be very careful. It's the business version of marriage. <laughs> um, and and again, the common error is people look for things they don't understand because they feel they have to have some kind of business background or, you know, the P of marketing. Most founders have no idea what a VP of marketing is and they shouldn't try to. They should say when the investor says, who's your VP of marketing? Just, the correct answer is, I don't have a fucking idea what a VP of marketing is. I'm just a guy who built this wonderful electric bicycle. But maybe you could, but I am very interested in someone who can help me learn about it. Instead of, oh, I better get someone with 6.2 years of experience in mid-market. The other thing is never hire for a job unless you personally can name a real human being who is a model for that position. They may not be a candidate. That's different. They may be someone, they may be dead. They may be someone you met 10 years ago, died in a tragic accident, God forbid. My point is not that they're a candidate, they're a model. You think, if you don't know that, you're in very dangerous waters hiring if you're just looking at a spec with terms you've never heard of. And you, so that I'm just trying to address some of the pitfalls I've seen. Um, but you, you know, it's it's a little bit of an art form and you get lucky. I mean, I I can tell you that some people have turned out like Dave Corcoran. I never could have imagined what a great founder he could be. I thought he was I thought he was amazing. That's why he was a founder, but he turned out to be better than amazing. And yet, um, John Chang, dear friend of mine from the Blackjack team, you know, and, and if he were right here, I'd say the same thing. Not a guy I would start another company with. That's <laughs> a mistake. Be careful of working with your friends. Sometimes they're good friends and sometimes they can be good founders too, but sometimes they're just good friends and not good founders. That's good advice too. Any uh, book or podcast recommendations other than obviously the venture business uh, okay book book or podcast recommendations well for um for books one i would recommend is called a perfect mess probably mm -hmm. not one you're going to hear about from other people yeah it is it was written probably about 10 years ago and it it is a counter view on prevailing wisdom on organizational systems basically the, i'll tell you the, the book the summary of the book is Everyone in the world's like, oh, you should be better organized. And the book says, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if your desk is a mess and you, you always seem to be disorganized, you may be optimal in some of your approaches. It's a really good book. And if, if nothing else, you'll feel better if you're a little like me with the, you know, always a little behind in your organization. And then in terms of, um, let's see, um, podcasts, um, uh, oh, I love the um, how they how they built it. 
Is that it? I, I got to yeah, remember how, the name because how, how I built I, this. Yeah, from Guy I get Ross. so used to. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I get so used to. Um, I love that one. I haven't listened lately, but um, I, I love it. Um, yeah, how I built this is that what it's called. I just have it in here. I know the icon. You get to this point where you you see it and you have the um, you um, you have the uh, the uh, icon. And you just go to it. Like, oh, also Office Ladies. So I'm giving you ones that are on my list. How I Built This. This is one of my real favorites. Yep. Office Ladies is really fun. Um, that's the two women who used to be on The Office. And then um, a real wacky one that's off the beaten path is called Carnival Personnel. Hmm. And it's these two it's this, these two Boston friends who sit around in one of the guy's basements and talk about sports and pop culture and media and and they're just it won't be a it, it probably won't be a million listen thing but it is it is a funny uh funny little podcast and i have my own podcast called masters of engineering okay um, cool products the people who build them how they yeah. do it that's what we talk about and um yeah those are some of them, some of the things on my mind oh i just i just listened to a really funny audiobook called squeeze me by um carl hyacin you ever heard him mm -hmm. that's really funny <laughs> if you want to hear a funny book better make sure the political views you have align with that of the book or you at least are tolerant of right. people making fun of your views because there's a lot of that but it's it's a fun book those are some great suggestions definitely some things that i need to check out well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background, all the great companies you've built and all the other you know, fun pieces of information about Blackjack and Magic and uh, the Breakfast Club. So we covered a lot today. Keith, my pleasure. My pleasure. And thanks for doing what you're doing. Um, I think you're, you're helping people, you know, build better careers. And I think that's noble work. So thank you. Thank you for your support. All right. All the best. All right. Take care. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.